Hello, my name is Maria Lehto. I am senior expert in public international law at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Finland and a member of the United Nations International Law Commission. I will speak today of the rules of international law that protect the environment in armed conflicts. I will divide my lecture into four parts. I will begin with the law of armed conflict, focusing first on the specific provisions that provide protection to the environment. Second, I will give a brief overview of other provisions of the law of armed conflict that are relevant in this regard. In the third part, I will give an example that highlights the contemporary relevance of the law of armed conflict in the context of environmental protection. Fourth and finally, I will speak of the contribution of other areas of international law to the protection of the environment in armed conflicts. An obvious point of departure for this subject is provided by the specific treaty provisions that address environmental harm in conflict situations. They are not very numerous. We essentially speak of the 1976 ENMOD Convention and two articles in Additional Protocol 1 to the Geneva Conventions that was adopted soon after in 1977. The ENMOD Convention applies to the military or hostile use of environmental modification techniques. Further requirements are that such techniques have widespread, long-lasting or severe effects, and that they have been used as means of destruction, damage or injury to another state. The Enmont Convention as such is not part of the law of armed conflict but armed conflicts are the most likely situations in which it would be applied. Similarly, other disarmament conventions and rules regarding certain weapons provide protection to the environment. Turning now to the specific provisions of Additional Protocol 1 on environmental protection, and these are Articles 35.3 and 55, they prohibit the use of methods or means of warfare which are intended or may be expected to cause widespread long-term and severe damage to the natural environment. They furthermore require that states' parties take care in warfare to protect the natural environment against uh, such damage which is widespread long-term and severe. Reprisals against the natural environment are also prohibited. The Enmod Convention is particularly noteworthy because it is the first and so far the only international treaty to specifically address environmental warfare. The two provisions in Additional Protocol 1 are significant in the sense that they first directly address the protection of the environment and, second, establish an absolute limit to the environmental harm that may be caused in conflict. At the same time, it is clear that the relevant provisions cover only certain 
clearly defined and restricted instances of environmental harm. While Article 55 of Additional Protocol 1 may be interpreted to provide a more general obligation of due care, these obligations generally apply to conduct that causes or risks to cause very serious harm to the environment by using specific techniques, weapons, or methods of combat. For instance, if we look at an understanding that was attached to the Enmod Convention and which explains what is meant by the concept environmental modification techniques in this context, we find that such techniques are capable of causing, and I quote, earthquakes, tsunamis, an upset in the ecological balance of a region, changes in weather patterns, such as clouds, precipitation, cyclones of various types, and tornadic storms, changes in climate patterns, changes in ocean currents, changes in the state of the ozone layer, and changes in the state of the ionosphere." Unquote. In 1992, the parties to the Enmod Convention adopted a further interpretation, according to which the Convention also prohibits the use of herbicides when they are used for environmental modification and have the effect of upsetting the ecological balance of a region. As for Additional Protocol 1, it is clear that the drafters intended to establish a very high threshold. It was widely seen at the time of the drafting of the protocol that environmental damage incidental to conventional warfare would normally not be covered by the prohibition. There is furthermore controversy regarding whether it can be applied to nuclear weapons. In addition, as treaty rules, the provisions of Additional Protocol 1 only apply to international armed conflicts. The Enmod Convention similarly applies to interstate relations only. What I wish to make clear is that these provisions nevertheless have a great symbolic significance and may even have had some preventive effect. There's no doubt about the need to prohibit and prevent the kind of extreme destruction of the environment these provisions target. At the same time, the very high thresholds diminish their practical importance. It is therefore important to take a broader look at the law of armed conflict. While the question of wartime environmental harm was specifically addressed in humanitarian treaty law only in the 1970s, much of the earlier law of armed conflict is relevant in this context and provides either direct or indirect protection to the environment. This is true both for the general principles of distinction, proportionality, and precautions, 
and for a number of specific provisions protecting civilians and civilian objects. To be mentioned first, the principle of distinction is one of the cornerstones of the law of armed conflict, a norm of customary international law applicable in both international and non-international armed conflicts. It requires that the parties to an armed conflict at all times distinguish between civilian objects on the one hand and military objectives on the other. Attacks may be only directed at military objectives. As the environment is inherently civilian in nature, it can only be attacked if it has become a military objective. In other words, if a part of the environment, due to its location, purpose or use, makes an effective contribution to the military action, it may be attacked, but only if doing so offers the attacker a definite, definite military advantage. Similarly, incidental or collateral damage to the environment has its limits. Unlike the threshold of widespread long-term and severe damage, these limits are not absolute, but depend on the prevailing circumstances. The principle of proportionality establishes that an attack against a legitimate military target is prohibited if it may be expected to cause incidental damage to civilians or civilians' objects, which would be excessive in relation to the anticipated military advantage. Applied to the protection of the natural environment, this principle means that an attack against a legitimate military objective is not lawful if its incidental environmental effects would exceed the value of the military objective in question. It is to be recalled in this regard that the International Court of Justice in the advisory opinion on the legality of nuclear weapons, held that, I quote, states must take environmental consideration into account when assessing what is necessary and proportionate in the pursuit of legitimate military objectives, unquote. The third general principle to be mentioned in this context is the principle of precautions in attack which requires that constant care is taken to spare civil civilian objects, thus also the natural environment, unless it has become a military objective. Parties to an armed conflict are to take all feasible precautions to avoid and minimize collateral environmental damage. In addition to these general principles, there are provisions that have a primarily humanitarian objective, but which also protect the environment or parts of the environment. For instance, prohibition of indiscriminate attacks, prohibition regarding objects that are indispensable to the survival of the civilian population prohibitions regarding works or installations containing dangerous forces, 
provisions protecting cultural property, prohibition of destruction not justified by military necessity, and the prohibition of pillage. This list is not exhaustive, and additionally, reference should be made to the provisions that relate to preventive measures to be taken before an armed conflict breaks out. For instance, the obligation to disseminate the law of armed conflict to armed forces and, to the extent possible, to the civilian population contributes to the protection of the environment. It is also to be recalled that, under Common Article 1 of the Geneva Conventions, states undertake to respect and to ensure respect for the Conventions in all circumstances. Furthermore, reference can be made to the obligation to conduct a weapons review contained in Article 36 of Additional Protocol 1. In accordance with this rule, new weapons and methods of warfare are to be reviewed so as to see whether their employment would be contrary to any relevant international obligations. The law of armed conflict also includes the law of neutrality and the law of occupation, which both contain provisions that can be applied to the protection of the environment. I will now give you an example of contemporary relevance. The rules of the law of armed conflict have in general stood time remarkably well and proved flexible enough to be adapted to changing circumstances. The age-old prohibition of pillage provides an example of a rule that has gained new relevance in the context of current armed conflicts. Illegal exploitation of natural resources has been a driving force in many, in particular, non-international armed conflicts in recent decades and has caused severe environmental strain in the affected areas. According to the UN Environment Programme, 40% of internal armed conflicts over the past 60 years were related to natural resources. And since 1990, at least 18 armed conflicts have been fueled directly by natural resources. In this context, the prohibition of pillage has particular relevance. Pillage is an established violation of the law of armed conflict in both international and non-international armed conflicts and in situations of occupation, indisputably the customary rule of international law. Pillage also constitutes an international crime. There's considerable case law from both post-World War II and modern international criminal tribunals confirming the criminal nature of pillage. The prohibition of pillage applies to all categories of property, whether public or private, and therefore also to the looting of natural resources, which has been a common phenomenon in many recent armed conflicts. The applicability of the prohibition of pillage to natural resources 
has been confirmed by the International Court of Justice in the 2005 Armed Activities Judgment. There is a limitation, though, in the sense that pillage only applies to natural resources that can be subject to ownership and constitute property. Valuable natural resources often constitute public or private property. At the same time, this requirement does leave out resources that cannot be owned, such as global commerce. The prohibition of pillage is nevertheless an essential legal tool to address the phenomenon of illegal exploitation of natural resources, at least in its worst forms. Pillage is a broad term that applies to any appropriation of property in armed conflict that violates the law of armed conflict. It covers both organized pillage and pillage resulting from isolated acts of indiscipline. At the same time, the law of armed conflict provides a limited number of exceptions under which appropriation or destruction of property is lawful and which do not constitute pillage. Pillage of natural resources is part of the broader context of illegal exploitation of natural resources that thrives in areas of armed conflict and in post-armed conflict situations. Other legal frameworks, such as those related to transnational organized crime, can be applicable to the broader phenomenon. UN Environment and the Interpol have pointed out that armed conflicts are increasingly part of global environmental crime. The Security Council and the General Assembly, too, have drawn attention in this regard to the connections between transnational criminal networks, terrorist groups and armed conflicts, including in relation to illicit trade in natural resources. I will now move on to look at the contribution of other areas of international law to the protection of the environment in armed conflicts. And I will begin with international environmental law. The question of the continued relevance of international environmental law in armed conflicts was addressed already in 1996 by the International Court of Justice in the advisory opinion on the legality of nuclear weapons, in which the court referred to the existing international law relating to the protection and safeguarding of the environment. The court held that this existing international law indicated, I quote, important environmental factors that are properly to be taken into account in the context of the implementation of the principles and rules of the law applicable in armed conflict." Unquote. This statement provides important support to the claim that customary international environmental law and environmental treaty law continue to apply in situations of armed conflict. The advisory opinion was found to provide 
I quote, general and indirect support for the use of the presumption that environmental treaties apply in case of armed conflict, end quote, by the International Law Commission in the context of its uh, 2011 draft articles on the effects of armed conflicts on treaties. The Commission indicated in this regard that treaties relating to the international protection of the environment, treaties relating to international water courses or aquifers, and multilateral lawmaking treaties in general may continue in operation during armed conflict. Reference can also be made to the 1994 Guidelines on the Protection of the Environment in Times of Armed Conflict of the International Committee of the Red Cross, which state, I quote, that international environmental agreements and relevant rules of customary law may continue to be applicable in times of armed conflict to the extent that they are not incons inconsistent with the applicable law of armed conflict." Unquote. Furthermore, it can be argued that to the extent that multilateral environmental agreements address environmental problems that have a transboundary nature or a global scope and have been widely ratified, it may be difficult to conceive suspension only between the parties to a conflict. Obligations established under such treaties can be said to protect a collective interest and be owed to a wider group of states than the ones involved in the conflict. At the same time, the situation of armed conflict may significantly weaken the state party's capacity to effectively enforce the relevant conventions. As for international human rights law, its applicability at all times is widely recognized. The International Court of Justice pointed out in the 2004 advisory opinion on the construction of a wall that the protection offered by human rights conventions does not cease in case of armed conflict, save through the, the effect of provisions for derogation. I quote, As regards the relationship between international humanitarian law and human rights law, there are three possible situations. Some rights may be exclusively matters of international humanitarian law, Others may be exclusively matters of human rights law, yet others may be matters of both these branches of international law." Unquote. In order to answer the question put to it, the court said it had to take into consideration both these branches of international law, namely human rights law and, as lex specialis, international humanitarian. Let me add that there are multiple links between human rights law and the environment, in particular economic, social and cultural rights, are dependent on the protection 
of the, the environment and ecosystems. It is widely recognized, for instance, by regional human rights courts and human rights treaty bodies that degradation of environmental conditions may violate a number of specific human rights, including the right to life, the right to health, and the right to food. As far as armed conflicts are concerned, the interplay of different areas of international law is most evident in situations of occupation. It is well established that human rights law plays a particularly important role in situations of occupation. The more so, the longer the duration of the occupation. The International Court of Justice has notably stated that respect for the applicable rules of international human rights law is part of the obligations of an occupying power under the 1907 Hague Regulations. The Court has further confirmed that international human rights instruments are applicable in respect of, in respect of acts done by a state in the exercise of its jurisdiction outside its own territory. I quote, particularly in occupied territories, unquote. The applicability of human rights law during occupation has also been recognized by regional courts as well as by the Human Rights Committee and the Committee of Economic, Social and Cultural Rights and has been largely endorsed in scholarly writings. As a rule of thumb, it can be said that the longer an occupation lasts, the more onerous the obligations of the occupying power. Or, as the ICRC says in its commentary to Article 2 of the First Geneva Convention, the obligations of the occupier are commensurate to the length of the occupation. In addition to the law of occupation, this applies to other areas of law, such as human rights law and international environmental law. It is to be recalled in this respect that an occupying power is expected to administer the occupied territory for the benefit of the occupied population. The occupying power's general obligation under Article 43 of the Hague Regulations to restore and maintain the civil life in the occupied territory has in this sense been explained as an obligation to ensure that the occupied population lives as normal a life as possible under the circumstances. Such an obligation has an obvious connection to human rights and indeed to the protection of the environment as one of the core functions of a modern state. A further example is related to the property rules under the law of occupation. According to the Hague regulations, an occupying power is only an administrator and usufructory of immovable public property in the occupied territory. The concept of usufruct can be explained to constitute 
a standard of good housekeeping, according to which the occupying power must not exceed what is necessary or usual when exploiting the relevant resource. A contemporary interpretation of this standard can hardly ignore the notions of sustainability and environmental protection, or the environmental law concept of sustainable use of natural resources. Lastly, I will refer to the law of state responsibility, namely the general rule that every internationally wrongful act of a state entails its international responsibility and gives rise to an obligation to make full reparation for the damage that may be caused by the act. This rule applies in armed conflicts as well as to environmental damage caused in conflict, including pure environmental damage. The rules of the law of armed conflict as well as the law of the use of force concerning the responsibility of states are clear and well established and support the general rule. As Lex Specialis in armed conflict, the law of armed conflict extends the responsibility of a state party to an armed conflict to all acts committed by persons forming part of its armed forces. As far as the law of the use of force is concerned, a violation of Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the UN Charter is furthermore seen to entail responsibility for all damage thereby caused, whether or not resulting from a violation of the law of armed conflict. Further basis for responsibility for conflict-related environmental damage may be found in other areas of international law, such as international human rights obligations, international environmental law, or the law of the sea, for instance. In practice, however, compensation for environmental damage caused in conflict has remained a rare exception. But so was the case for long with peacetime environmental disasters too. Environmental cases have nevertheless become more frequent in arbitral tribunals and even in the International Court of Justice, which has given a number of landmark judgments specifying the environmental obligations of states, also related to situations of armed conflict. This evolving case law is very relevant to the protection of the environment in armed conflicts. In this lecture, I have walked you through quite a number of different rules and principles of international law, with a focus on the law of armed conflict. One conclusion of this overview is that there is no comprehensive and coherent legal framework for, for the protection of the environment in armed conflicts. At the same time, we have seen that there is clearly more than just the few specific provisions addressing environmental harm caused in conflict. While these specific provisions in the Enmore Convention and in Additional Protocol 1 have great symbolic value, 
and maybe potential for further development as far as the detailed care is concerned. They have only covered the tip of an iceberg in terms of environmental damage caused in conflict. Post-conflict environmental assessments conducted since the 1990s and related research have revealed that environmental damage in conflict results from a great number of factors that are not only or even most often related to conduct of hostilities, that's actual fighting. The more legal tools there are, the better environmental harm in conflict can be prevented or minimized. Thank you for your attention.